Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of The Cognitive Canine, and this is called Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. Hey guys, I'm doing a new program that I'm calling Wednesday Night Chats. This is a Facebook Live that'll be happening every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific on my business page, which is on Facebook. It is facebook.com slash thecognitivecanine. I hope that you'll join me over there. We're going to be talking about basically all things what to do with dogs in a pandemic. How do we prepare our dogs for when our lives go back to normal? How do we socialize puppies right now? And... If we can't get out to do a decompression walk, what are we supposed to do? So join me over there. It's a free program, but I am accepting donations for it. All the details will be included each week. So that's facebook.com slash the cognitive canine Wednesday nights at 5 p.m. See you there. All right, friends, today is LSM day. What is that? Location specific markers. You've heard about them. Maybe you're trying them out. They are becoming more and more widely used in the sport dog world. So I'm going to talk about what they are, why you might want to use them, why you might not want to use them, and kind of what the best practices for me are just as the trainer that I am today, which will change, I promise. So let's get started. What is a location-specific marker? Well, First of all, let's talk about what a marker is. So a bridging stimulus or an event marker is a cue to take the re- to take reinforcement. It tells the animal to take the reinforcer that is available. And because it tells the animal this, the animal will repeat the behavior that it was doing when it heard the marker in theory. So let's back up. All markers are cues. They're cues to take reinforcement. Um, What a location-specific marker tells the dog is where the reinforcement is, and you can go further and have the marker specify what the reinforcer is as well. Why you might want to do that would be to incorporate maybe the quote-unquote right feelings um, into your training. So we all know that our reinforcers produce feelings for our dogs, um, sometimes really big feelings. And we want to incorporate the correct feelings kind of into our behavior that we are training. So if your dog feels a certain way about kibble and a totally different way about a ball on a rope, you're going to pick your reinforcer that produces the behaviors that you want. Um, And when I say behaviors, I mean the behaviors that those feelings produce, or is it the other way around? (laughs) It's a very cyclical argument we could have, but essentially it's the right feelings, meaning the right actions, because we can't see feelings, but we can see behaviors that tell us Um, that hint at the behaviors that are, I'm sorry, the feelings that are underneath those behaviors. So we want to incorporate the right actions into our final behavior, as well as the right emotions into our final behavior. And choosing our reinforcers wisely helps us do this. And being very, very clear with our dogs about what reinforcer is at play will 
also help to streamline this part of your training. So if you think about maybe you're training a, um, a stopped dog walk behavior. So the dog is stopping in a two on two off. If you always release the dog out of their two on two off to a thrown toy, you are going to get one set of behaviors versus if you reinforce the dog in position with food, you're going to get an entirely different set of behaviors. And in either case, if you are not clear about which one the dog is getting, you will work frustration into your process. So using a specific word that tells the dog all of that information is just one way for you to cut to the chase to be very clear with your dog. You could certainly do it without a location-specific marker as well, just by being very clear in your body language. We always want to be avoiding frustration and disappointment in our learners, and the use of location-specific markers, I have observed, can help do that if they're done well, so if they're done correctly. So how do we do them right? I'm going to dive into some of the best practices as I see them today. This has certainly been an evolution for me. Location-specific markers are something that I've been using for going on about three years. Um, so that's three years against, you know, 20 years of dog training. So it's a short amount of time and I've evolved quickly actually in those three years to land on what I feel is working best for me with the dogs that I'm currently training. And then I will talk a little bit about what's working best for my clients because it's a little bit different. So for me, when I enter a training session, I typically have one reinforcer at play that the dog's going to be working for if I'm teaching a new behavior. So if I'm teaching something new, the dog knows what it is he's working for, and it's either going to be a toy or food, essentially. So those are the two reinforcers that I use to build behavior. I want the dog to know which one is at play beyond a shadow of a doubt before we even begin, because I don't want to work disappointment um, into any of my behaviors. I don't want my dog to expect get, to get that ball on rope and be given food instead when he does the correct behavior. So I definitely do not want that, um, that potential for disappointment woven into anything that I'm doing. So I'm very upfront with my dog about what reinforcers are at play. And I'm going to be honest, when I'm teaching new behaviors, I'm pretty much using food. I incorporate toys later, um, basically as part of my fluency enhancement process. So it's kind of asking the dog, can you do this behavior if a toy is what's at stake? Because for Felix, that means there are higher stakes now involved and it will tell me if the behavior is really good and solid or not when I bring that toy in. I do not use marker discrimination within a session. Okay, so I would not have like a dish with a cookie in it next to a ball on a rope at the end of a dog walk and tell my dog to take one and not the other. I would not do that. Those are both reinforcement strategies that I have in my toolbox, both a dead toy on the ground and also a single piece of food on a target that the dog is told to take when I would like them to take it, either one of those. But I would not ask the dog to discriminate it within a session. Where marker discrimination comes in for me, um, again, where I'm at today as a trainer, is in asking my dog 
where he's at and whether or not he's able to work. So it's kind of, it's in my um, kind of advanced worked up protocol. And it's essentially goes like this. I present the dog with a toy. I present the dog with food. I ask the dog to take one and not the other. If the dog is capable of taking one and not the other, when I ask him to, then he's also capable of running an agility course. But if he's snatching at the food or the toy when I asked him to take the other one, or maybe he takes the food and then quickly bites the toy or bites the toy on his way to the food or, you know, any other kind of sloppiness like that, that tells me that my dog isn't here yet, needs more warm up, needs more, um, might need more acclimation, might need some soothing. So it's a question basically for me. My friend Chelsea um, said this really beautifully in a conversation we had where she said that good dog training is like good investigative reporting. If you're asking questions that your subject doesn't know the answer to, you're not going to get anywhere. But if you're asking questions that are too easy that they don't have to think about, you're also not getting anywhere. So you want to be finding those sweet spot questions that you know they know the answer to, but they maybe don't know that they know the answer to. And so that's where marker discrimination comes in for me, is just testing their ability to answer my question, my tough questions right. Because what is a weave pole entry or a tunnel dog walk discrimination? or a tough throttle situation um, other than just asking them tough questions, right? These are just hard questions. So I want to first ask them hard questions about their reinforcers. That's the value in marker discrimination for me rather than utilizing it in my specific training. I certainly have colleagues who are utilizing marker discrimination to enhance the fluency of behaviors that they have trained. That's not where I'm at today. Ask me in another six months. <laughs> I, I could be there. Um, always, always pick the reinforcement strategy for the job and then stick to it as long as it's working. So what that might mean is, you know, Felix has a cue to duck behind my back and grab the toy out of my right hand in healing. That's working really nicely for us when I'm using a toy reinforcer for healing. But if he were giving me crabby behaviors or maybe lagging behaviors looking behind me or if any behaviors in my healing were anticipating the toy and therefore not looking the way I wanted them to look, then I would need to alter my reinforcement strategy. Think about your strategy first and your markers second, essentially, because I see what's going on um, in a lot of my students is that they train like 17 different marker cues, but the dog doesn't actually necessarily fully understand all these cues. And now the dog's back to just watching your body language and not listening to the cues at all. And now we're back to essentially not using an effective marker. So you pick the reinforcement strategy for the job. You teach the dog the reinforcement strategy. And then if you would like to, you add a specific cue to that strategy. So for instance, like I said, I've got a cue for Felix to duck behind my back and grab a toy out of my right hand in healing. I don't want to give him any body language indication that that's what's going to happen because I want to mark when he is in perfect heads up heel position. I don't want to mark um, later and I don't want him to have to watch my body language to tell him where the toy is. So we're healing along and I say my word is Zerk. Um, we're healing along and I say, Zerk, and he flips behind my back and grabs that toy out of my hand. 
Alternatively, I can put the toy on the ground, do some healing away from the toy, and then cue him to go get the toy off the ground. I have another cue for that. Could I simply use the location of the toy itself? Like if the dog already knew where the toy was, he knows it's in my right hand, he knows that it's on the ground, couldn't I just have one generic cue that means go get the toy? Of course I could. And this is how I train Digi and how a lot of people are training dogs. And it's it's really okay um, so long as, again, you're very, very clear about it. The reason that a location-specific marker might become necessary is when the strategy is a little bit more complex. So I wouldn't necessarily need a different cue to tell him to get the toy if I didn't need complex behaviors like duck behind my back to grab the toy out of my hand. If I just need the dog to get a dead toy off the ground or bite a toy from my hands, and those are the only two that I'm ever using, the only two toy deliveries I'm ever using, I could certainly use the same word for both of those things. The only thing I wouldn't do is use the same word for food on the ground or food from my hand personally. Again, some people are doing this. They're using, say, a clicker for everything. So a clicker means take your reinforcement in these um, people's systems. And it's working beautifully because the dog knows exactly what the reinforcer is that's at play from the beginning. As long as they know the rules from the top, you're fine. The problem arises when you don't know the rules very well and therefore your dog doesn't know the rules very well and then it becomes kind of sloppy and messy. So... Again, clean training principles actually rule all. So for me, I pick the reinforcement strategy for the job and I stick to it. And if it's a complicated strategy, then I might teach it separately and put it on a separate cue. Like the word zerk means duck behind me and get the toy rather than go in front of me to get the toy, which is what he wanted to do initially for sure, because that's just more natural um, than ducking behind. So, and then people ask me all the time, what about a clicker? Do you still use a clicker? I absolutely do. It is still my go-to for acquiring new behaviors with food. My clicker is my freebie in the sense that I establish the reinforcement strategy in the first few clicks of a session. And I do not switch my strategy up within one session. So I might train for one minute with one strategy, evaluate, decide if I like that strategy, if I want to change it for my next minute. My clicker always means food, but that's the only thing it always means. The food might be thrown, the food might be on a target, the food might be coming from my hand. And what's really important there is that I use very deliberate body movement as I'm delivering that food, especially in those first few clicks while my dog learns where the food is going to be delivered to. And again, I'm very careful about my strategy usage, so I'm going to decide, you know, if I'm shaping my dog to grab a dumbbell, is it smart for me to then put food on the ground so he has to raise his head back up to bite the dumbbell? Or is it smarter for me to just feed him from my hand right next to the dumbbell? You know, what's going to work best for us? And I established that right away in the first session. I may only train for a 30 second, one minute burst, evaluate, decide if I want to change it. I don't use a clicker to indicate a toy. Um, a lot of that has to do with Felix and the fact that we get a lot of big behaviors in association with toys. And I don't want there to be any chance that he hears the clicker and thinks a toy is at play. 
because when I'm using a clicker, I am always using food. And when this dog starts to think that toys are at play, he gives me behaviors that are not helpful a lot of the time. And so I, I worry personally that if I clicked and that meant go buy a toy, that I would weave some of those toy feelings into some of my other sessions. So I, I try to keep that clicker really pristine and only mean food. If it's working for you to use it interchangeably, as long as the dog knows what reinforcer is at play, then it's working for you. So I get a lot of questions about, is this okay? Is this okay? The answer is, is it working? Is the learner telling you it's okay? Because if the learner's telling you it's okay, then it's okay. There's no wrong way um, to do this if you're still getting the job done. So here are kind of the cautionary pieces that I want to give you if this is something that you want to maybe involve in your training. You must have clean marker mechanics first and clean reinforcement delivery mechanics first. So it's not just click then treat. It's mark, then reach for that reinforcer, then deliver it to the dog the exact same way that you um, did the last 20 times that you did it. We get really sloppy and um, with our reinforcement delivery a lot of the time we go, what matters is the toy is on the ground. Well, it also matters how you put the toy on the ground. Um, when I have that toy in my right hand and I want to tell Felix Zerk to duck behind me and grab it, I need to make sure that it is presenting a bite surface for him that is clean so that my hand doesn't get bitten. And I need to make sure that it's not swinging around. I need to make sure that it is there, solid, hanging, so that he can very clearly duck behind, open his mouth and grab it. And it looks the same for him each time. If he has to struggle to get it, you're weaving that struggle into your behaviors and we don't want that. So your, your mechanics must be clean above all else. If you use one marker for everything, but your mechanics are clean, you will be 10 miles ahead of the curve um, in front of people who are sloppy, but have 17 markers. Okay. So Cleaning up your mechanics is first, is number one. And I have to tell you, most of my students um, that I, you know, I'll go around the country and I'll go around the world and I will watch people train. And this is still a struggle, um, yet they're trying to incorporate a lot of location-specific markers. So I've changed my teaching strategy on that front. And I'm happy to say that in the past six months, I've seen much, much better mechanics, Um and I can maybe talk about that on Patreon or in a later episode as far as what human communication worked better than what I was doing before. Um, but essentially, if your mechanics are not clean, you have no business introducing a multiple marker system. So use one marker, use it well, learn it beautifully, and then go from there. I would say if you're using food and toys, you can start with two markers, one for food and one for toys. And just focus really, really hard on those clean mechanics, which is that the marker and the reinforcement delivery are separate events. So you mark and then the reinforcement delivery event begins. You need to build your reinforcement strategies first. So before you try to put all these cues on everything, teach the dog how to take the reinforcement. The dog doesn't know how to bite a toy from your hands. You have no business saying a word that means bite a toy from my hands. These behaviors are just like every other behavior. If it does not exist in the animal's repertoire. You cannot put it on cue. You are adding a cue here. This is cue science. So you want to 
predict that the behavior is going to occur. So get the behavior happening in a loop, see that you can predict it's going to occur, and then insert your cue. So if I want to teach my dog to eat a cookie off a target on the word dish, I'm going to put a cookie on a target. He's going to eat it. I'm going to do it again. He's going to eat it. And I may insert a secondary cookie or another behavior in there to kind of lengthen my loop here so that I'm able to insert um, a cue. But essentially, I've got the behavior happening in a loop, and then I insert my word dish. So I put my food in the bowl, say dish, dog eats it. I might throw food away to get rid of him, reload the bowl. Dog's on his way back. I know he's going to eat it. I say dish. I see too often people, you know, they put food in the bowl and they go dish, and they expect the dog to do something. And especially if the dog has a history of it's your choice or other kind of default impulse control training, he's not going to eat that cookie. He thinks you're tricking him. So you have to get the behavior happening in a loop or you can't put it on cue at all. And then I'm going to encourage you to only teach the things that you need and not much more. So just because so-and-so has 20 different marker signals doesn't mean that you need 20. Um, I don't have near as many as my friends, uh, Shade Weitzel and Sarah Bruski do, but they both only also have markers that they need. So they have trained them when they need them and then use them intentionally that way. I do that too. I just haven't found that I need as many. And I think a big difference is that I don't do bite sports. <laughs> they do. And so their training can get a little complicated, especially trying to do uh, bite sports with positive reinforcement. And so they've trained the system that they need. So, and I would encourage you to train the system you need also rather than training somebody else's system just because they said. So um, when I find that I need a new cue, I train it. Um, and I have definitely trained cues that I went, that I've just never used again. And I don't waste my time doing that anymore. So I would also just say, and this is, purely from my experience so far, and then also um, chatting with some people about it who are also playing around with these things, that using these cues to take reinforcement are very, very important um, if you're going to be using toys in your training. And that if you are only ever going to use food, I would focus more on cleaning up your mechanics and using a clicker well, personally. Can you use a multiple marker system for food well and have that work beautifully for you? Of course you can. I do find that they're more important in my experience for toys. And the reason being toys have more baggage attached. They have more um, junk emotions and feelings attached. And the reason they always will is because they're secondary reinforcers that we build up. So nobody needs to bite a toy to live. Um, and therefore, they have other stuff involved in there. It is actually a, you know, bite the toy is a behavior cue that you are telling the dog to do to then maybe get the to the actual reinforcer, which might be tugging or might be chasing, etc. So I have more thoughts on that. It might be for another day. But generally speaking, if you're going to use toys in your training, I think it's worthwhile that you dive in and learn some of these things. And if you don't use toys in your training, um, then you maybe don't have to. And nobody really has to, but what everybody has to do is clean up their mechanics of their marking and reinforcement delivery. So I hope that produces more answers than questions, but of course, if it produces questions for you, you know where to ask me, which is over on Patreon. 
Okay, and a few Patreon questions for you. The first one comes from Litsi, who says, What do you do with your dogs to minimize the danger of rattlesnake bites? Maybe not a problem in the Pacific Northwest, but you lived in Colorado and you travel a lot. Uh, rattlesnakes are far more present in our area of New Mexico than they used to be, including close to our house. Many people I know swear by the so-called rattlesnake aversion training, but it's way too aversive for me. I've stepped up recall practice and my version of leave it, which is I've got something better training, but I really appreciate your suggestions. Thanks. And uh, Noah tagged along asking about positive methods for rattlesnakes, uh, rattlesnake avoidance, and mentioned that she heard that Ken Ramirez was working on a, pro a project for this training. So the short answer is that I minimize risk by where I walk them and what time of year. And I know that that... Um, isn't possible for everybody. Like if you live in New Mexico, they're pretty much everywhere. In Colorado, they were pretty much everywhere um, except for up in the high country. So in the summer, I pretty much hiked off leash in the mountains uh, where they weren't. I think it was around, you know, if you get up past like 8,000 feet, you're not going to see them. So and my preference was around 10,000 feet. So we would just pretty much do most of our decompression up in the mountains. Um, in the Pacific Northwest, they are not an issue, which is really fantastic. And I'm really grateful for that. Um, when I was traveling through New Mexico and Arizona, I minimized risk by hiking near water. And I would keep the dogs on leash, honestly, if I was worried about it. And... That's kind of generally speaking the best answer I have for you today because I don't know anything about um, what Ken Ramirez is working on. I'm sure that we will all be privy to it as soon as it's kind of quote unquote done. And he's working with some people on it. I don't think it's actually his project. So that'll all come out, but we don't have it yet. Um, there are some positive reinforcement based rattlesnake avoidance training protocols that exist. Um, but I need some evidence. I need some evidence that it's effective um, for actually avoiding bites for me to be able to promote it. As you mentioned, it's really normal and typical to use an e-collar to teach dogs basically to be afraid of rattlesnakes. So that rattlesnake aversion training that you mentioned. Um, as far as I'm aware, there's no evidence behind that either. It's all just kind of, this is what we hope will happen. As far as I know, no one has done any kind of study where they looked at dogs that have had the training versus dogs that have not and how many of them got bit versus how many of them didn't. When my partner, Leslie, was a veterinarian in New Mexico, she said, you know, generally speaking, she saw rattlesnake bites all the time. And most of the time, the dogs were not messing with the snake. Most of the time, the dog had no idea the snake was there ran over the top of the snake, got nailed. If they don't know it's there, they can't avoid it. And I know that, you know, some of the programs focus on scent. I wouldn't be surprised if Ken's program, the program that Ken is consulting on focuses on scent. Um, but anyway, it's, it's a much longer conversation that I'm going to have here. The short answer is that I minimize risk as best as I can by avoiding areas where the snakes will be, and then also keeping my dogs on leash if I have to. All right, next question comes from Elizabeth. I recently saw your suggestion for decompression walks. Do as much as you need to see the behavioral change you want, 
then double that time. I have an adolescent hunty type dog and we go on off-leash decompression walks typically every day or every other day. Um, she goes on to say that the dog likes to chase critters, likes to flush birds, and then lists her concerns that, number one, she logistically can't add more time to the weekday walks, which are generally two hours. So if it takes two hours for the dog to chill out, yes, my recommendation is typically to hike another two hours, but four hours is not reasonable for anyone on a weekday. I understand that. Um and she says she's not sure she can hike long enough for the hunting behaviors to stop, though though she can try. And so I'm going to say that um, basically, number one, go back and listen to that hunty decompression episode. I, I think you probably have. But for dogs that are in constant critter seeking or kind of constant prey mode, I actually try to decompress them in places that have fewer um, fewer critters when I can. So I'll kind of alternate. Okay, we're going to be in the woods. We're going to be in the tall grasses. And you are literally going to be just hunting this whole time. And I, you're going to wear a bell and you're going to wear a GPS tracker and I'm going to breathe. Um, and then sometimes I'm going to put you on a long line and harness and we're going to zigzag a very manicured soccer field where there really aren't going to be many things for you to hunt. And you are going to learn what it feels like to just sniff. Um, that's not going to be fun for you at first, Elizabeth, hanging on to the end of that long line. And so if it's a safe area where you can drop the line, I would. But if it's, you know, bordered by areas that are going to have a lot of critters, then I wouldn't drop the line because that's where the dog is going to go to. So when I recommend that you hike as long as it takes for the dog to calm down and then go that much more time, again, that's a terrible way to say it. So if the dog, it takes the dog one hour to calm down, hiking another hour is my recommendation. I'm not really talking about dogs that are hunting and crittering. I'm talking about dogs that are just beside themselves about this freedom and they're screaming and they're running full bore and they're slamming into other dogs and they're being ridiculous. Those are kind of the dogs that I'm talking about. The hunting dogs, the dogs that have high, high prey drive, they're not going to stop hunting. So having activities where they are not hunting is important for them. And it's also really important for them to continue to allow them to hunt on these walks. So it sounds like you're doing a fantastic job. Um, Elizabeth also mentioned my approach thus far has been to implement an on-leash cool-down period, 20 to 30 minutes from the car, and to be sure that time that this time is still fun with lots of sniffing. I think that that is fantastic if the dog is actually chilling out for those last 20 to 30 minutes and not frantically trying to keep hunting. So if the dog is actually walking and sniffing during those last 20 to 30 minutes, that's a perfect approach. All right, Stephanie asks, what would you recommend as enrichment for a dog on crate rest or restricted activity due to an injury? Uh, bonus points for activities that don't involve a lot of extra food since weight management is part of the rehab protocol. Of course, it always is. Basically, you will find mountains and mountains of enrichment ideas throughout the podcast. Um, but I would really think about, first of all, making every single calorie count. I had a dog recently on some restricted activity due to an injury, and she also was in a rehab program, so she needed treats to do her rehab exercises. And I just really made sure that every single calorie counted. I was watching her put on some weight due to the restricted activity, so I had to shed back on that. So I made her 
quote unquote diet Kongs. So her diet Kongs were stuffed with just peanut butter and yogurt. You could use low fat yogurt if you want. Um, and they were the smaller Kongs. So she would still get a Kong every day, but it wasn't the same pretty rich, pretty fatty, um, large Kong that I give every day to all of my dogs. It was a smaller Kong, smaller size with, um, lower fat stuff in it, lower calorie stuff in it, um, and more importantly. And then I just made sure that I did my exercises for her for, with little tiny small bites and do some scent games, do some scent work, um, with the dogs, teach them some nose work. You don't need to use a huge, huge amount of treats for nose work, um, or scent work projects. You can use little tiny bits of food. You can use low fat yogurt in a tube that they just lick kind of a little bit out. Um, all of those things would work for you. And scent games tend to be highly, highly enriching without being just about eating. So good luck. Rehab is hell, <laughs> but it's very, very necessary. And uh, there is another side of it. All right. Bronwyn has a question that a lot of people have, so I'm really happy it's here. She says, can scatter feeding teach dogs that it's okay to pick things up off the ground they're not allowed to? I saw a thread on a group I'm in and people were concerned about their dogs eating things they shouldn't. I approached it as if, um, if I, I approached it as if I've told my dogs to search for a scatter, they're doing it in an area I've indicated and when I've said, but if I haven't, my dogs won't as long as I've taught impulse slash stimulus control so they shouldn't eat things or pick things up. A lot of people have this concern. It has to date never been a problem for me or any of my clients unless the dog already has a problem frantically eating stuff off the ground constantly. Um, the only dogs that I may not do scatter feeding with might be dogs that are simply never allowed to eat anything off the floor, period. And I think the only dogs that that's an acceptable thing, an acceptable kind of rule for you to put on them in their life are service dogs. Every other dog should really be allowed to eat off the floor and everybody needs to calm down. Um, my dogs, when I say scatter and I throw a scatter in some grass or wherever, they are really good at finding the scatter food and not eating anything else that might be there because my scatter food is good stuff. Yes, you're absolutely right that this is a stimulus control issue. And if you don't want your dog eating stuff off the ground, then you're going to want to take some measures to teach them actively how to not eat stuff off the ground unless they are cued. So it's all a training issue. Throwing food on the ground does not teach them to eat everything off the ground um, because eating is kind of that self-reinforcing behavior. So eating is in and of itself positively reinforcing. So anytime they do eat something they're not supposed to off the ground, that's what kind of feeds that behavior pattern. But eating the stuff that you ask them to eat off the ground does not. So hopefully that helps Bronwyn and I think it sounds like you responded to that thread really nicely and I appreciate that. All right, last one for today comes from Suzanne. She says, I'm curious on how you teach loose leash walking, not formal healing or long lines, but just chill walking when you sometimes have to do urban exercise on a six foot leash. How do you turn the dog that looks like it's pulling a musher versus a dog that uh, walks calmly with its person? What does this training process look like? Suzanne, I go through this training process in depth in my um, Teenage Tyrants online course with Fenzie Dog Sports Academy. But essentially, if pulling never gets the dog anywhere, then pulling will not be a problem for you. The problem is that people are not perceptive enough to light pulling. And I gotta be honest with you, the reason that my dogs do not pull me on leash 
is because it's very painful for me due to some orthopedic issues that I have if they do. So I joke that it's like I'm wearing a prong collar. It hurts me when they pull. And so I work really, really, really hard from day one to never, ever allow pulling to be reinforced. And that's why my dogs don't pull. If you come at it with a dog that has a long reinforcement history for pulling and now you're trying to train them to walk nicely by the person, you are going to need a no-pull device, in my opinion. You're going to need a device that makes this happen for you much easier. Of course, you've got um, anywhere from as mild as a um, balance harness all the way up to as aversive as a prong collar and like everything in between. There are a lot of different options here. I am not going to say what option is right because I don't know your situation and your situation for your situation, a head halter might be right for your situation. A front connection harness might be right for your situation. A prong collar might be right. I haven't used a prong collar in probably 15 years, so it's not actually a tool that I reach for often, but so is a head halter. I personally don't use them either. My partner does on her dogs um, when they're young because she's one of those people that is not super in tune with pulling because it doesn't hurt her. It's not a huge deal. And so her dogs generally kind of learn to pull a little bit and then she needs to rein them back in and teach them not to when they're big. And she uses a head halter to get through that time and there's nothing wrong with it. Um, So I would use a device. And then basically what I do is... I, when I see that the dog is going to pull, and again, this is because I'm so keenly aware of the pulling that I'm able to do this. When I predict the pulling, I say something to them and I, I just go, hey, and it sounds exactly like that. And then I plant myself and I anchor the leash on my body. If you don't anchor the leash, then your leash will bungee out from your body with your arm, which is not helpful. So I anchor my leash on my body. I stop myself and I go, hey, And then when the dog hears that, they understand that they will be met with a brick wall. It is as if they are pulling a tree. I don't know if you've noticed, but when you tie a dog up to a tree, they don't pull on the tree. And the reason is the tree doesn't move. So they learn that that's not going to work for them really, really quickly. The dog has a long reinforcement history for pulling. Again, this will not work unless you have a no-pull device on them. Um, And you may need to use some food. I try not to use food because I don't want them next to me looking up, which feeding for me tends to produce that behavior. Are there ways around it? Yes. Is food the problem? No. The application of food is the problem. I don't do it well, so I tend not to use food. But again, you guys, my dogs tend not to need to go through strong remedial no pulling because they never learn to pull because it hurts me so bad. So... I'm going to go ahead and throw some videos um, regarding loose leash walking up on Patreon. So if you're not on Patreon yet, you're going to get that content for free. Um, Well, for free, for your Patreon um, contribution for much, much cheaper than you would normally get it. Um, And I may consider just doing an online course or a webinar for it. So uh, through my personal business. So let me know if that's something you're interested in. And thank you all very much for your questions. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, being a part of the CogDoc Radio community, and getting access to all kinds of extras, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio to become a patron.